0: What's most troubling about this legislation is that there are extremely vague categories such as misinformation and hate speech that are very, very difficult to define in law. So this opens the door to a form of arbitrary bureaucratic power over the platforms.
1: What will be the impact of the European Union's sweeping new rules for big tech, not just on Europe, but also on America?
0: They can also declare an emergency, and in the event of declaring an emergency, require the platforms to take special measures to counteract the emergency.
1: In this episode, I sit down with David Thunder, a political philosopher and research fellow at the Institute for Culture and Society at the University of Navarra. This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanya Jekielek. David Thunder, such a pleasure to have you on American Thought Leaders. Thank you. It's great to be here, Jan. Why don't we just jump right into it? What is this Digital Services Act?
0: Well, the Digital Services Act is a piece of legislation that just went through the European Parliament recently. And uh, it actually is concerned with the regulation of online platforms such as Twitter, YouTube, Facebook, TikTok, and so on. Um, it covers a broad range of issues, um, including child pornography, transparency of terms and conditions, um, and the sort of standardization of um, of the regulations across the European Union um, that affect these platforms. Uh, but from my point of view, what's most troubling about this legislation is its uh, treatment of Um, Basically, it's introduced a form of censorship um, of these platforms by the European Commission, um, specifically through issues such as hate speech and disinformation, uh, because it gives the European Commission oversight over these platforms. um, uh, And they they can actually undertake a kind of review of the platforms, policies, and regulations over the previous year. Um, and if the platform has not been in compliance with their requirements, these platforms can be fined um, a massive amount billions and billions of, of, of dollars.
1: You know, that is uh, obviously of, of great, great concern um, to those platforms, but also could be a great concern to people who use these platforms. We're talking about these very large ones that have you know, become a kind of infrastructure, in fact, for, uh, for a lot of uh, people the world over.
0: Exactly. They've become a kind of a g- digital town square or a global digital town square, you might say, in which really um, much of the news and commentary that happens in the world gets filtered through these platforms. So even though they're private, um, platforms they act as public forums and that's a very important point to make that they do have a public function in, demo- in our democracies um, and, and so any form of oversight of these platforms by uh, say the European Commission is something that I think people um, who care about democracy should be concerned about um, and of course, n- nobody would object to them taking down child pornography. Um, that's not the issue. Um, the, the, the the issue with this legislation is that um, there are extremely vague categories such as misinformation and hate speech that are very, very difficult to define in law, um, that the auditors of uh twitter or other platforms the people who are auditing them every on a a regular basis um, have to take these categories into account and decide whether the platforms have sufficiently enforced rules against disinformation and hate speech Um, and if they haven't they'll be heavily fined and they could even be suspended from operating in the european union eventually Um, so uh, but these categories are not nowhere defined in law in a clear way so this opens the door to a form of arbitrary bureaucratic power
1: over the platforms. You know, there's uh, one of the features, and I, f- I actually forget the term, what they're called, but essentially the system employs what the equivalent of what we know as fact checkers, right? Fact checker organizations.
0: Yes, they're, they're basically they, they employ, they will end up employing a small army of what they call trusted flaggers. Um, And the trusted flaggers are not exactly fact-checkers. They're supposed to identify illegal content on the platforms. Um, And these trusted flaggers are nominated, and trusted flagging organisations, are nominated by the uh, digital coordinators of each member state. Um, So there is some outsourcing of the work to the member states. um, But fundamentally, uh, when the sort of the, the oversight is going to come from the, the central power, which would be the European Commission and whoever it nominates to do this oversight, this work of oversight. Um, so I think that's when really, uh, you know, when we're going to see the impact, the full impact, um, but not just then, but before that, because really these platforms have to anticipate that they're going to be reviewed. And so uh, when these these trusted flaggers flag content, um, these platforms like Twitter or YouTube, really, they they can either take down the content or they can decide to keep it up and give some reason for keeping it up. Um, But if they're consistently ignoring the advice or the recommendations of the trusted flaggers, that will come up in the annual review, in the periodic review uh, by the Commission. Um, and then the Commission will probably say to them, why are you ignoring our recommendations? Um, so there'll be that kind of conversation. And, um, and so it is a kind of mechanism for pressuring uh, pressuring the social media companies to comply with the policies of the European Commission. Um, and I would emphasize again, that in European law, there is no clear definition of disinformation um, nor is there any clear definition of hate speech. Um, so these two categories are going to be, are inherently expansive, they're inherently vague, and they're obviously put in the hands of the European Commission, can be used to advance whatever their political opinions are about these matters.
1: David, so these uh Flaggers, trusted flaggers, I mean, essentially they have the ability to take down content, assuming that the platform is, uh, you know, reciprocating. And there's, you know, you can sort of imagine a situation given the extreme nature of the fines that one of these platforms could get. They may err on the side of self censorship, self censorship in the sense that they will just agree with those flaggers, whoever they may be, um, which so they effectively they're working like one of these fact checkers and then if they don't comply then they'll get this they'll get audited and they might get this massive fine. Is do I understand this correctly?
0: Yes, uh, that's basically that's basically I agree with that. I think that's the most likely outcome um because it really is a massive fine that they'd be facing. I believe it's up to 7 per 6 or 7% of their annual turnover. I found it shocking the amount that they could be fined. So, yes, they will, they will anticipate and they will take, uh, let's say, defensive measures um, because that's just good business strategy. Uh, otherwise, they can be sunk in massive fines at the, end of, at the end of whatever that review period is.
1: So what is the impact beyond Europe?
0: Well, that's a good question. I mean, um, in principle, uh, I don't know if it's it's practical for a social media company to completely separate um, the visibility of, say, tweets or posts in one region and in another. And whether, the for example, the Twitter experience or the X experience would be completely different if you're living in Europe than if you're living in the United States. Uh, I mean, I'm not a legal expert, but I would imagine that... Um, one, one of the obvious impacts is just the, uh, the sheer cost for the social media companies of having to put in place an infrastructure to be constantly re- resp- responding to these trusted flaggers, a kind of a regulatory in- infrastructure. So it's going to be a burden, I think, a burden on the platforms, not to mention the, that they will be paying fees to the European Union for this service. Um, so certainly there'd be an extra cost for the platforms for the end user um it's hard to say uh it would be up to the companies to decide whether they're going to sort of standardize their policies across the world or whether they could you know have a twitter experience x experience you know TikTok experience for every, for say the united states and another one for europe um, europe would be a more censored experience in this case um, but i'm speculating because i'm not sure exactly how the social media companies will respond to this these
1: regulations? I mean, and basically, so you're arguing that it does do certain valuable things that are highly defined. For example, you know, restrict child pornography, which I think uh, uh, maybe not a hundred percent, but just about everybody would agree is is a really good thing. To, and but that is something that's very finely defined, and then that also it also incorporates these very broad. Uh, broad areas.
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, one example was the use of algorithms um, that could be potentially manipulative. The there's a part of the legislation requires social media companies to be more transparent about how they use people's personal data in designing their feed and their experience of the of the particular platform. Um, so I think that's a pretty good idea. It's a pretty neat idea, actually. To uh, bring in more transparency, more respect for privacy, um, and the example you gave of child pornography—I mean, who's who's in favour of child pornography? I mean, I mean, really. Uh, so, and I'm sure there are lots of innocuous parts of the legislation because it's a very long piece of legislation, as I discovered when I waded through it. Um, uh, but but there are key points, uh, sort of pressure points. Um, as I said, the disinformation issue, the hate speech issue, which, which is ex- inherently expansion, expansionist. They can also declare an emergency, and in the event of declaring an emergency, require the platforms to take special measures to counteract the emergency. Now, what could that mean? We can, we can imagine what it would mean. They're not very specific, but presumably it means if they think that there's an emergency pandemic, Um, you know, an emergency uh, because of a pandemic, or it could be because of a war, say the Russia Ukraine war, where they could decide, well, you know, you've got to start censoring propaganda coming from the other side, for example, right, so it can become part of a war machine, in a sense. Um, But, but again, it's the vagueness and the open endedness of these emergency powers. It's just not clear exactly how they will use them and what power they'll give them over these platforms. So as a piece of law, any lawyer should be aghast at a piece of law like this, a piece of legislation like this, because it gives vague, very vague powers to uh, an unelected, um, an unelected
1: organ of governance. Uh, namely the European Commission. I want to talk a little bit about you know, how uh, I came to know you. And of course, you're one of these uh, folks who has been, um, let's say, a voice of reason and a voice of thoughtfulness um, uh, during the pandemic, or at least for some portion of, the, of it. Um, so what, give me a little bit of background on how you came to this and you know, what, what happened what, when you first saw something was wrong uh, with the pandemic response.
0: Yes, I mean, basically, um, I was living in Spain, I've li- been living in Spain for over 10 years. Um, and I was one of the first cases of COVID myself, actually, um, because it was February 2020, uh, late February 2020, when I, when I came down with COVID. Um, I never really tested for it, but I, I lost my sense of smell and I had all the classic symptoms of COVID and it was dreadful and, and I was out of action for about a month um and had a cough for about six months uh i mean i wasn't hospitalized thank god and you know i got over it um but in the course of that the the the, the, those months the the spanish government ordered people to not only stay at home but not even go for a walk not even go to the park not even walk their kids out outdoors people were allowed to walk their dogs but not their kids um crazy stuff crazy stuff was happening And um, I knew as soon as they said you couldn't take a walk, um, you could only go to the supermarket but not take a walk for any other reason, I knew that that this was made up, this stuff was just made up and it was just made up on the hoof by uh, people who were panicking and wanted to make a power grab and make people feel like they were doing something. Um, And I was extremely worried about the, as I saw this, these draconian measures, you know, being applied all over the world. I knew, I knew from an early stage that this was going to lead to chaos and that it was going to cause far more harm than good. Um, as a student of the social sciences, I was aware that any dramatic, large scale social intervention um, is going to have inherently unpredictable and chaotic consequences that are very difficult to control. Um, and the experience of the pandemic has proved to this principle is true because of all the knock on effects of paralyzing people's lives, um, and isolating people and shutting down businesses and, and early from early on in the pandemic, I was aware that this was going to happen.
1: I keep coming across this theme again and again, as I speak to people who became aware very early in the pandemic, that something was really amiss. And in your case, this is in the social sciences. Is this a principle that every social scientist would know? uh, Or is this something that was more focused in your particular area of discourse or or of interest?
0: I think any attentive social scientist who um, is aware of great, very large social experiments like uh, Russian communism um, or like Stalinism, um, or national socialism in Germany, um, you know, uh, should be aware, or even the city planning movement to the United States in the fifties and sixties, uh, should be aware that these interventions historically have been disastrous. Well, so so what happened? Um, I think what happened is essentially that uh, fear and panic. Um, Kicked in on one side, I think, Uh, I think there was genuine fear in the population Um, and there were people who were well placed in government circles to understand the problem, um, to begin to understand the problem, who reinforced that fear and perpetuated that fear. Um, And it became a kind of a self-reinforcing cycle of fear and more aggressive interventions and more fear because every time you lock down the population, people think this must be, um, you know, Armageddon. When you lock people down, an authority, a public authority locks people down, they receive the signal that there is a really dramatic problem here that they need to respond to. Um, and it turned out that the authorities were mistaken. It was a serious problem. And, uh, but it was not uh, a problem on the scale that would justify locking people in their homes. And as we know, countries that did not do that, like Sweden, came out um, much better than many of their neighbors that did lock down. So there really is no evidence that lockdowns worked to, in the medium to long term, to stem the spread of disease. Um, it's just, it's not realistic. Human beings are not like that. They, they have to get on with their lives. They have to make a living. They have to go to work. And they have to eat and they have to socialize at some point. So that was unavoidable.
1: You know, I'm was this is exactly what I was thinking about uh, when you were talking about these emergency powers that for extra censorship or whatever that are granted by this new DSA law.
0: Yeah, um, I mean, in a way it's. It's a kind of a rationalization that they offer for these powers because the, I guess their, their idea is that somehow them controlling the flow of information on the internet is vital to managing public emergencies. And that in itself is a very questionable premise. And, um, you know, it's very self-serving premise as well for a government. Um, whenever a government wants to make the case for more, having more power, We should be very suspicious Um, and you would think, in fact, that during an emergency, you would want a more open Internet and a more open flow of information so that vital information that is concealed or that is not easy to access can actually come to the fore. Um, You would not think that the opposite, that in fact, shutting down information is the best thing you can do to manage an emergency.
1: It's astonishing, uh, isn't it? What happened? Well, why don't we do this? Um, why don't you just give me a sense of, you know, your a bit of your background, and then let's bring it up to what you're actually studying currently, which is, I guess, uh, highly relevant to this discussion.
0: I'm a political philosopher, and um, I'm interested in. Um, I've studied issues connected with the ethics of citizenship, what it means to be a good citizen and um and some of the obstacles to being a good citizen some of the corrupting um let's say influences of political institutions and practices and um and and in my later career uh i've kind of turned towards the institutions of democracy and i've focused a lot on um the conditions under which uh democratic political institutions can contribute towards the all round flourishing of their participants, basically so that citizens can live more satisfying and rounded human lives under these political institutions. Um, So that's kind of where my research is at at the moment. And um, I'm particularly interested in the decentralization of political institutions and the principle of federalism, which is a very, very cherished and familiar principle in the United States.
1: So it's the federalism in the United States that actually you know, allowed for different approaches to the pandemic. Uh, you know, as we know, for example, Florida you know, basically broke the lockdowns very early on, basically uh, within a month. There's other states that stayed locked down for a very, very long time. And of course, completely different approaches to various types of mandates, including mask mandates and vaccine mandates, and uh, even messaging around the pandemic as well. Um, which, uh, you know, provided this sort of, as it's described, you know, laboratory of democracy scenario where we can look back and say, okay, well, which approaches were better, which worked, uh, which didn't, and so forth. I deeply appreciate this approach. This is very different from my home country of Canada, of course, where everything is much more centralized.
0: Yeah. I think this point about experimentation and about sort of laboratory of democracy is fundamental um, because if uh, if you centralize a political system too much, then what happens is that you deprive yourself of basically invaluable knowledge and understanding of p- public policy, because if you only impose one policy across a region, then um, you 'll never really know for sure whether that was the best policy or the optimal policy because you don 't have a control group you don't have a kind of um, a parallel universe, if you will, where a different policy was applied. And and so the federal system allows for these kinds of experiments in democracy and in public policy to run in different directions so that observers can then understand their outcome better. So I am not American, but I lived in America for many, many years for, um, you know, for at least 10 years. And um, I have to say that I'm very attached to the principle, the federal principle, and I, I, I think it, it is extremely important to preserve it um, so that uh, power remains as dispersed as possible. Um, and, uh, and I would further say that the, the federal principle should be applied within states, intrastate state. So that municipalities and boroughs and counties can have as much autonomy as they can over their own affairs, um, I think that's really fundamental for democracy to work uh, work well.
1: You know, I want to touch on something that we discussed a little bit offline, which applies both to this uh, DSA law and also just this general topic we're discussing here. We live in a world where um, we're kind of told that. We need experts to mediate our understanding of the world because the world has become so complex. And you know, this pandemic response—if anything, if one of the sort of silver linings of it has been to show us that that approach doesn't seem like it's going to work very well, right? Given the a lot of poor decision making that was made by people who who were experts, and then the doubling down on you know failed policy. And so forth. This is this has been kind of a feature, a feature of the pandemic. But just you know, something we discussed earlier uh, was just the very idea that you know one group of people or a small group of people or these fact checkers or flaggers or whatever could actually have the level of understanding to decide you know what is true and what is false. That itself is a a serious question. But I and and here's the thing, like. I feel like we've been conditioned a little bit to believe that that might be possible, but you argue differently. So tell me about that.
0: Yeah, I mean, basically, um, this has to do with how both scientific and political knowledge and moral knowledge, how it actually works. We have to understand that, in fact, um, in order to get to the truth, in order to understand what's going on in the world, we actually have to engage in a back and forth in an argument with other people and um our we have to be able to examine the evidence openly and the evidence that's presented has to be contestable by other people like in a court of law in a way kind of adversarial you could think of it in an adversarial way Um, you know i'm held accountable by other people for what i say because they can challenge me right but if we set aside an anointed group of people, and we say, those people, they have the truth, uh, will protect what they say, it cannot be challenged. Then we're undermining the very basis for rational discourse, which is the ability to be challenged by others. Um, and, and of course, the notion that there is an, an anointed class of people is like something out of a sci fi novel or something. It's, it's absolutely, impl- utterly implausible. Um, and I think it's made its way into popular ideology. And the the reason it's it has such an appeal is because it makes the world very tidy. Because then instead of having to grapple with complexity and contradiction, I can just be fed the truth by an expert. And, and that makes me feel kind of comfortable. Um, it can make me feel comfortable. It doesn't make me feel comfortable personally. <laughs> it makes you feel uncomfortable to be fed ideas constantly by an expert class, but I can understand how that could psychologically be reassuring to think that these people have the truth. The NIH, uh, the CDC, uh, it's kind of crazy to think that a doctor who's outside the CDC should not have standing to to criticize the CDC or challenge its ideas. I mean, it doesn't make any sense from a scientific or rational point of view.
1: No, uh, absolutely. And, you know, it's uh are we in this kind of a moment where you know so many of us i mean i'm thinking back to hannah arendt's writings right now right are we in a moment where we're kind of poised to accept some kind of technocratic rule it's not just a matter of of you know there being this kind of impetus for that kind of uh, power structure in itself but but that that we're more maybe interested in 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 it than we, than we have been in the past.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think there are a uh, very famous thinker, Alexis de Tocqueville, you know, who, who wrote his famous, wonderful uh, volume uh, called the Democracy in America. And he predicted, he was very prescient. He predicted that, you know, modern governments in promising people security and comfort um, could become effectively what he called soft despots right softly despotic, despotic meaning that instead of relying on you know the police uh, coming to your home and you know knocking your door and rounding you up they would just get compliance through by regulating the hell out of people's lives and um so that you know people's initiative and creativity would be destroyed by having to go through bureaucratic hurdles for everything they did. Um, And so hyper-regulation of people's lives by the state, um, I think in a way can really um, enervate them or it can really kind of reduce their energy and it can reduce their creativity and it can convert them into, it can infantilize them. And so I think technocracy in itself can feed on itself by, by creating habits of compliance um, with minute, minute rules, complicated rules. And, 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 and in some ways, I think people, I, th- I agree, people seem to be more open to technocratic control of their lives. Um, um, but there are other people who are resisting and pushing back, and we shouldn't forget that. There are pretty strong resistance movements in places like the United Kingdom um, and uh, peaceful resistance movements uh, and, and so and populist movements as well that are, you know, anti-establishment and anti-technocracy. So it's not all doom and gloom. There are some signs of resistance
1: to, to these kinds of tendencies in democracy. So absolutely, I, I wholly agree with you. Um, you know, one of the things that this whole pandemic has exposed to me and has been a topic of many shows, or at least one of the topics of many shows I've done, has been just this realization that I've had that some of us are easily propagandized and we, we can come to believe things which are, you know, when you sit down and really think about it for a moment, wrong, right? And but yet we can Pick up through it being in the popular culture and being pushed out through, you know, let's say social media and media or, you know, many, many mechanisms at once, um, we can come to believe things which, you know, upon reflection don't really make a ton of sense. And so we live in a society where, you know, some portion of us, and we sometimes without even knowing at all, you know, believe in things which another portion of the population doesn't. And so the idea is, you know, you want people to have, you know, a common, a common set of knowledge, a common set of facts, right? You know, you can't have alternative facts, right? Um, facts are, facts are facts, right? But, but that's not where we are today.
0: Yeah. I mean, all of that is inherently anti-philosophical. It's anti-reflection. It's anti-thinking. It's anti-freedom. To, uh, to, 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 to present people with a, a very rigid worldview that they should accept on faith, essentially, because it's unchallenged um, and it's sort of authoritative, right, so we should accept it. What you're, you're talking about points also to the fact that our societies are quite polarized and divided and that um, there is disagreement over fundamental issues that affect how we live together that affect how we run our society, how we how we regulate our society, and so the prospects of you know creating a feasible uh, political system that we can all inhabit together seem pretty poor. Um, and and here I think decentralisation plays a really critical role. Um, not only territorial decentralization but also uh, things like you know um, school vouchers so that people can select the kind of school they want to go to and want their children to attend um, to have some control over the social world Um, so i would argue that because precisely because our society is so diverse because there's so much disagreement and conflict moral cultural religious um precisely for that reason, we should try to facilitate people to organize and to um, you know, join communities that, broadly speaking, can agree on fundamental issues concerned with how they live together. And, and so, yes, of course, you need an overarching constitution and some kind of a regulatory framework but I would argue that that regulatory framework that is like an umbrella within which all these communities can exist should be minimalist. It should go to the bare minimum of non-aggression, you know, um, some kind of you know, uh, rules against criminal conduct, um, some rules about public order, uh, so that communities can then develop their own life in their own way. And they don't all have to be celebrating a gay way of life and they don't all have to be against a gay way of life. I mean, I, 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 you know, in a way, we have to understand that it's a practical issue. It's a practical problem. It's not about deciding what the best, most ideal society is going to be. It's about how do we get these people as they are to be able to, you know, uh, interact with each other, engage in a common market you know, pass each other in the street. Um, that's not going to happen if we think that all of the important moral and cultural issues have to be settled for everyone in a state. That's It's just not, not going to happen. It'll only polarize the population and it'll accelerate the demise of that society.
1: Well, I mean, inherently, um, you know, some people would be you know, forced to take on a set of values, right, in this type of context.
0: It it would end up being that either a majority or um, a powerful political faction, which may be just a, a strong minority or a powerful minority, would end up dictating the terms of our common life in a way that goes completely against the will and the interests Um, and the opinions of the rest of the society, and they would feel trapped. And when people feel trapped, they become resentful, bitter, angry. And um, it's a recipe for an unstable uh, society, Um, inherently unstable and explosive. Uh, So, you know, people get complacent about democracy, about Western democracy, and they think, oh, well, we don't see bombings in the street um, but I think that's a mistaken attitude because, because ultimately um, underneath the veneer of peace and respect, uh, you know, there can be a lot of tension and resentment. And if you allow it to bubble, you know, to just sort of develop over time, there will come a time when it explodes and um, democracy relies on mutual respect and on um, recognition of the legitimacy of our shared institutions and so if those institutions become polarized or only are perceived to represent the ideological or economic interests of a special class of people then many citizens will just switch off and will defect and they'll reluctantly go along with what they're told to do until they see an opportunity to overturn those institutions um, I mean that sounds dramatic to say it that way, but I, I do think, and I would say the United States um, is on course for a form of dismemberment, if these issues are if there's a if, if people attempt to resolve these issues at the federal level, it's a recipe for dismembering the United
1: States. So, okay, well, why don't we why don't we look at uh, what what do you see as a as a solution here?
0: Well. I think the solution is um, there's no completely satisfactory solution because politics is very messy and because, you know, living and sharing public spaces is inherently a messy kind of process when people have different opinions and so on. But having said that, there are ways to mitigate the uh, pathological effects of political uh Partisanship and, let's say, uh, division and polarization. And one of those ways that have been recognized by uh, scholars of what's called polycentricity, which just means uh, lots of different. It just means basically decentralized governance um, is to decentralize power and allow communities to run their own affairs in their own way. Um, and have a very strongly protected right of exit um, and right of mobility, so that uh, essentially citizens can vote with their feet, so to speak, and they can move to communities that are more amenable to their outlook on life. Um, And and so if people wanted to, maybe that's an example that's been discussed or cited by a lot of people, uh, apparently a lot of people have moved to Florida during and after the pandemic. Um, and you can bring that down to a smaller scale and you can even bring it down to the level of municipalities and counties um, to some extent. You can actually have different rules for different regions um, and different governments. Uh, and I know people think this sounds very radical probably, but but honestly, I think... You know we're up against fairly radical problems now, and so we need to start to open our mind to radical solutions, um, such as decentralisation. Well,
1: indeed, you know if you read uh, my good friend Roger Simon, who's also you know our uh, editor at large at Epoch Times, he has a new book out called American Refugees, which is precisely about this phenomenon of people migrating from blue states to red states, and just a lot of the kind of phenomena associated with that.
0: Yes, in terms of people finding their life meaningful and worth living, um, uh, it's very important how their social environment is structured. I mean, the the people you hang out with, the people you cross paths with, um, and the kinds of activities you engage in, social activities, are fundamentally important for your self-development, for how you view yourself and how you move in the world, how you navigate the world. And so it's not just geographic decentralization, it's also allowing civil associations, or let's say allowing civil society organizations, um, such as educational institutions, to have um, maximum autonomy to be able to cultivate a shared way of life without being constantly micromanaged and constantly in a way uh hyper regulated by uh, overseeing um, powers i'm not saying they should be i'm not an anarchist and i'm not saying that that you know universities should have zero regulation uh, by say the state Um, but i'm saying that in terms of ideology in terms of philosophy Um, Universities should have a lot of freedom, in my opinion, to develop their own um, research programs, their own uh, educational programs. And then citizens should be free to go there or not go there, as the case may be, so that there's a kind of a, a market effect as well, you know, that people choose what kind of education they want for themselves and their children. Um And this can be applied to many different sectors of social life uh so so yeah, I think the freedom of civil society is is a fundamental part of uh, for part of federalism
1: yeah, I mean you know here in America, a lot of people that I speak with, a lot of people who are here on the show will say that you know the educational system, especially higher education, is you know kind of irrevocably lost has been caught up in this. You know, kind of woke Marxist ideology, uh, so to speak. And uh, you know, there's, it's very, very difficult to, to have an education. So there's this whole parallel, you know, I don't know if you call it economy, but parallel set of institutions which are trying to kind of form in this, in, in this process. And a lot of people don't think that, that those, the existing institutions, can even be reformed because they're so saturated with ideologically saturated with this view of the world.
0: Yeah, I mean I think um I think if you were to look at it positively then people should see this as an opportunity um because in a sense if those institutions were not quite so saturated then there'd be less of an incentive to set up alternative vibrant new fresh uh, institutions. Um sometimes starting from scratch even though it's 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 very difficult. Sometimes it can give rise to great projects and um, do do an awful lot of good in society. So in a sense, just getting by and just kind of more or less surviving in old, um, worn out institutions may not be a very, it's not just not a satisfactory response. And um, whereas I think trying to set up independent institutions that are not stuck in these patterns of wokeness um, can be a huge service to society and can open a new path of discovery and a new path of development for many, many citizens. So I like to see this in a positive light and kind of think, you know, if we see pathologies in our institutions, then maybe it means we need to you know, bring up fresh shoots, fresh life, uh, and grow that from, from small to big, starting small, obviously. Uh, but it can be very exciting as well to start up new ventures.
1: So, David, it's interesting. You have a book that you've written actually about citizenship and the importance of it. And I guess the meaning of it, the meaning it can bring to people. Um, Here in the US, you know, one of the regulars on this show is Victor Davis Hanson, whose book, The Dying Citizen, is chronicling how that, you know, that role almost in in society is actually dying out.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think basically, uh, we are living in a time when there is a kind of retreat by many people into the private sphere, into the sphere of family and entertainment. And away from the public sphere, the sphere of politics and public engagement, whether it be at the local level or or at the national level um, and um, and and so taking an interest in public affairs um, and engaging in with a public spirit in 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 public affairs is fundamentally important for the future of democracy. but I argue in my book also that Um, You know, caring about the common good, caring about the good of my neighbourhood, of my city, is actually something that makes me a better person as well. It actually helps me develop virtues like justice and magnanimity, helps me become a more great-souled person, as someone who looks outward towards my society and helps it become better.
1: You know On the one hand, we see a lot of people that are very, you know, disillusioned and wondering whether there's any point of participating in the political process, right? On the other hand, um, there's been a huge increased interest in, for example, school boards—a very, very much a local, you know, political office, political role—and you know, this actually has had some profound impact on on school districts across the United States recently.
0: Yeah, I think it's so important that people um, do not have contempt. They should not have contempt for citizenship at a very local level. I think that's so important and not to underestimate the importance of engagement with the school board or engagement with, you know, if you're in a university in the in the governance of your university um, or of any civil society organization. Um, or even, you know, good governance in a business, even. These are all ways in which, in my view, we can, you know, um, practice good citizenship uh, to the benefit of everyone.
1: Any final thoughts as we finish?
0: Sometimes people can become discouraged and disheartened because it seems like so many things are going in the wrong direction. Um, and I, I like to say that, um, and I say this for myself as well, that we only get one life to live and um, you know even if you live under a a very problematic government um, there are so many good things that we can do with our life for the people around us um, including building institutions but also just in our neighborhood in our family among our friends um, that the meaning of our life does not turn on our success at changing the whole world I think that's just a fundamental, very important point. Um, The meaning of our lives comes from the way we live our day-to-day life and touch the lives of those around us, not whether we change the whole world. I mean, I could almost have to say that to myself as a mantra because I think the ideological atmosphere is very much tends to encourage us to think we have to change everything or we've failed. Whereas maybe just making small changes
1: can be very meaningful in itself. Well, David Thunder, it's such a pleasure to have had you on. Thank you. I've enjoyed the conversation. Thank you all for joining David Thunder and me on this episode of American Thought Leaders. I'm your host, Yanya Kelic. <music>